Hello and welcome to a special mini episode of The World in 30 Minutes, which we are broadcasting from the 29th floor of a hotel in the middle of New York, where we are listening to the traffic of all the different motorcades of presidents, prime ministers, heads of state, and the global media who are here to witness the crazy carnival of the UN General Assembly. To help me make sense of what's going on here, I'm joined by my colleague at ECFR, our expert on all things United Nations, Richard Gowan, and we're going to talk a bit about what's going on this week, what we heard from Donald Trump, from Emmanuel Macron, what uh, this means for the future of the United Nations as an institution, how Antonio Guterres is doing as its new leader, as well as some of the big issues that came up, particularly issues which concern war and peace and nuclear weapons. So, Richard, why don't you tell us what the, the big events are this week? To be honest, the entire General Assembly this year pivoted on one man, and that was Donald Trump. In past years, you've had big substantive discussions at the General Assembly of issues like climate change and global development. But this year, diplomats and leaders were almost entirely focused on what Trump would say. There was a lot of speculation that he would give a, a rambling speech that he might produce hours of um, invective, uh, rather like Fidel Castro or Colonel Gaddafi used to do at the UN. But at the end of the day, he stood up on Tuesday morning and gave a very disciplined speech for about 40 minutes that was also pretty scary. He had a few nice things to say about the UN. It wasn't as bad as it might have been, but he clearly had two main messages for his fellow leaders. One, he is willing to use force uh, to solve the North Korean crisis. And two, he is intent on ripping up the Iran deal. And I think diplomats and presidents and prime ministers came away from that speech uh, pretty worried about what they'd heard. So why don't we look at those two big topics. On the first one, he, he talked about Rocket Man or the suicide mission. Um, it was a slight break from the diplomatic language, <laughs> which is sometimes used <laughs> in these speeches. But what was actually lying behind that rhetoric? One thing that was fascinating about Trump's speech is that there were three or four moments where he came out with zingers, including the, the Rocket Man zinger, that were evidently designed uh, to play well on Fox News and play well on Twitter. Um, what Trump actually said about North Korea was a little more balanced than most of the media coverage has suggested. Yes, he did say that he was willing to totally destroy and is able to totally destroy North Korea if it comes to war. But he did balance that a little bit by uh, saying thank you, actually, to China and Russia for supporting Security Council sanctions against Pyongyang. And he closed the North Korea section of his speech by saying that he still wants to solve the problem through the United Nations. So, to some extent, the, the rocket man, the totally destroy stuff, may have been blather. But it's what stuck in the mind of all the leaders in the room. So did the Russians and the Chinese thank him back for, for his thanks? I don't think the Russians have sent a formal note of thanks. Actually, the Russians and Chinese both had reasons to be quite happy with this speech. That was one 
odd feature of Trump's appearance. When President Obama came to the General Assembly, he usually had some criticism of China, and in recent years he always had strong criticisms of the Russians over Ukraine. Now, Trump mentioned Ukraine in passing, but it was a very, very brief reference. Uh, and similarly, he mentioned the South China Sea in passing, but it was fleeting. Uh, I actually think that Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, neither of whom have been in New York this week, will have been quite pleased that Trump went fairly soft on them. Now, he has to go soft on them because he does need them in the UN and outside the UN to put pressure on the North Koreans. So, I mean, if you want to look for some bright spots in, in his speech, it may be that uh, he wasn't too confrontational towards Beijing or Moscow. So one of the things that many people have been wondering about for a long time and uh, is why there is so little diplomacy around the North Korean issue. I mean, uh, why, you know, in the kind of uh, many months since the framework broke down, has there not been a suggestion put forward about f at least freezing what the North Koreans are doing? Well, there are multiple suggestions for diplomacy, and the, uh, the Chinese are, are particularly strong on the idea of a freeze-for-freeze freeze deal, by which the North Koreans would halt their nuclear and missile work in response to the Americans uh, halting military exercises uh, with the South Koreans. The Americans here absolutely reject that possibility, and Nikki Haley, the US ambassador to the UN, has called it insulting. I think that a lot of foreign policy commentators in the US believe that at some point the Trump administration will move towards dialogue with the, uh, with the North Koreans, but there wasn't much indication or much hope of that in Trump's speech. So what was the idea behind Trump's speech? I mean, what's the end game behind the Rocket Man comment? I think that the Rocket Man comment was largely uh, designed for a domestic audience and, and the media. And I think that it has played extremely well uh, with the conservative media so far. I think that the goal of Trump's softer comments, his, his acknowledgement of China and Russia's support, is to try and keep the Security Council together and uh, you know, set the stage potentially for more sanctions against Pyongyang. I mean, Trump's in a funny position. He, uh, you know, he came to office bashing the UN. He rejects multilateral diplomacy. A large part of his speech in New York was about the need for sovereign states to be independent. But on the single biggest foreign policy crisis of the moment, he is surprisingly reliant on the UN to get anything done short of war. So my guess is that for all the bellicose talk, we're going to see the US coming back to the Security Council uh, for more help on North Korea. Nonetheless, there is definitely uh, a percentage chance that you will see a drift towards military options if, if the council starts to run out of steam. So second topic you talked about was Iran. Um, one of the few big successes of international diplomacy in the last decade was the fact the the signing of the JCPOA as it's uh, as it's known the deal whereby Iran opened up all of its nuclear sites to to deep and intrusive inspections in exchange for an easing of, of sanctions um, it's a deal which has looked like it's been on borrowed time since Trump was elected he 
talked about it during the campaign beforehand as the worst deal that was ever negotiated. He talked about it as an embarrassment in his speech yesterday. Um, what's going on with that? I mean, I have to say that Trump sounded actually much more genuine uh, in his loathing of the Iran deal than he he did in his uh, comments on North Korea. He clearly does uh, want to undermine President Obama's legacy on, on Iran, and that was very clearly his, his goal in front of um, the General Assembly. He didn't actually commit to ripping up the deal, but it does sound increasingly likely that he will refuse to certify that Iran is in compliance with the terms of the agreement in late later this year. Now, there's a difference in the UN between the Korean case and the Iranian case. On Korea, although diplomats are, are nervous about where the US is going, there is underlying sympathy for Washington. There's an understanding that Pyongyang is almost impossible to work with. By contrast, there is very, very little sympathy at all for the uh, Trump administration's potential rejection of the Iran deal, except from the Israelis, perhaps, and the Saudis. Uh, if the US does try and undermine the deal, uh, you are going to see a breakdown in the Security Council of pretty epic proportions. And it was notable that Emmanuel Macron, in his speech, uh, a little after Trump made a very, very strong defence of the deal. And I think you could end up in a situation where, amongst the permanent five members of the council, the US would find itself isolated against um, not only China, Russia, but also France and probably Britain. So we'll go into Macron's speech a bit later, but I, I think there are different ways of seeing him putting pressure on this deal. One way is to stay within the confines of the deal and to say that there have been breaches from the Iranian side and there have been some kind of uh, issues around um, the heavy water uh, reactor in Iraq and, and various other things, but it's a it's a narrower point. Um, another option is for him to go against the spirit of the deal by allowing sanctions to be introduced in other areas in non-nuclear spheres, but which could at least um, in Tehran be seen as going against the deal. How, how does that work? I mean, I do not know what um, Trump's plans are. I think that it is possible that he will do everything short of formally collapsing the deal. And Nikki Haley um, made some slightly curious comments in the run-up to the General Assembly week in which she um, said that there was a strong case for the president to declare that Iran is not in compliance uh, with the agreement. But that would not mean that the agreement would necessarily die. I mean, the Trump administration does have an emerging track record of talking very tough on diplomatic problems and then uh, stepping back from really confronting other powers. Um, and it's possible that, as you say, Trump is looking for, looking for ways to put pressure on the Iranians, but not bring the entire deal down. But can they even bring the entire deal down? Because the deal's not a deal between the US and Iran, it's between the P5 and Iran. So, um, you know, if Britain, France, Russia, China say that they want the deal to carry on, um, can it carry on with the US walking away from it? I think the political reality uh, is that if the US walks away from it, then it will be extraordinarily diff um, difficult for the other powers to sustain the, the agreement. 
after all, from the Iranian perspective, US withdrawal would um, look like the first step to potentially much more threatening options, including perhaps uh, US use of force down the line. Trump tried to bring down the Paris deal on climate change, and there he has failed. Actually, the Paris deal on climate change continues to uh, retain the support of every other country on Earth except Syria now. But that was a a big multilateral bargain that was not solely reliant on, on US support. The Iran deal, by contrast, I think needs the US in it to remain credible. Okay, so that was um, the the two big things that he talked about. Should we talk a bit about Emmanuel Macron's speech? He was the, the kind of bright new star on the UN firmament. Uh, earlier in the day before he spoke to the General Assembly, I was at a, a new big conference which Mike Bloomberg has created, the Bloomberg Global Forum, which I think is trying to take over some of the space that has been opened up by the end of the Clinton Global Initiative, because Hillary Clinton promised to to end that as part of her election campaign. And uh, Bloomberg had assembled all of the great and the good in the world, including, you know, Tim Cook and Bill Gates from business, a lot of different leaders such as President Erdogan and um, the uh, Italian Prime Minister and Mogherini and Christine Lagarde and also uh, Bill Clinton himself gave it his imprimatur to show that this is the spiritual heir to the Clinton Global Initiative. But one of the the brightest kind of uh, stars on the scene was was Emmanuel Macron, who came along and spoke in perfect English, whereas his UN speech was was in French. This was very much aimed at global business. And he was talking about climate change and about economic reforms in France and the future of Europe in different terms. And in a way, it felt like a sort of anti-Trump uh, rally because uh, the big themes were about how important multilateralism was. There were big attacks on Trump uh, immigration policy. Um, interesting aside from Mike Bloomberg, who said that that Bloomberg's staff in the UK and the US some, uh, had approached him and asked to go and live in other countries because we don't feel welcome here anymore <laughs> because of the anti-immigration rhetoric. But uh, but Macron's uh, speech in the General Assembly came a few hours later, and that was full of passion and uh, was delivered uh, as if he was at a, a kind of revivalist political rally rather than at the UN. And I think it was very well received. Macron was always going to be one of the stars of this General Assembly. He was lucky um, to be speaking relatively soon after Trump. I think other diplomats, other leaders were were looking for someone to step up and make the case for the Paris deal, which Trump didn't even mention, uh, make the case for the Iran deal. And Macron very effectively hit all those marks. And in a year in which a lot of other significant leaders are missing from New York. There's no Angela Merkel because of the German elections, no Putin, no Xi Jinping. Uh, Macron effectively seized the mantle of voice of the international community. I think it's worth saying that at the UN, the French have been uh, pretty effective this year in countering a lot of the Trump administration's early efforts to undermine multilateralism. The French have gone into uh, gone into block American efforts to undermine some of the big UN peacekeeping missions like the peacekeeping operation in uh, in the Congo I think that they are seen as really sort of 
on a day-to-day basis, some of the most effective defenders of the UN system against the US. So Macron's speech raised the level of of that and confirmed that France is going to uh, keep fighting the good multilateral fight. So one of the areas where he wants to fight this fight was on Iran. We talked about that a little already. Um, He talked a lot about Syria and the need to have a political settlement in Syria. To what extent do you think we might be entering a, an inflection point in the in the Syria crisis? One of our colleagues, Julian barnes Dacey, has just written a very interesting paper called To End a War, where he sees that maybe um, we are entering a different phase, partly as a result of shifts in American policy, um, the success which Russia has had on the ground in, in changing the circumstances, and also a shift in Paris above all. Which which could lead to a new willingness to come up with a with some sort of uh, de-escalation rather than carrying on escalating it. I think the the sense around the UN, not only this week but more generally, is that the conflict is stuttering towards some sort of close, and you know UN officials are working hard behind the scenes on plans to get more assistance into Syria if and when that becomes possible. Uh, assistance in terms not only of humanitarian aid, but starting to reconstruct the country. The reality is that all parties recognise that Russia is now the dominant political player on the Syrian crisis. The French have been trying to increase their leverage over Syria. Macron was talking about um, ideas for a new contact group of major powers concerned with the conflict that could help bring it to a close. There are some tensions between the US and the French over the contact group idea, however, because the Trump administration doesn't really want to see the Iranians brought into any discussions, which obviously they will have to be. Nonetheless, it seems likely that we are on a diplomatic path to de-escalation, and that will uh, require a lot of European support, and it will require a lot of UN support too, just in terms of steps to get the country back onto its feet, which the Russians lack the resources to do in their own right. So Europeans will be uh, making a contribution with their checkbooks? Uh, Yes, and UN officials will be essentially laundering that money and turning it into uh, well-intentioned, although often probably quite ineffective, uh, plans to get political life back on its feet. So we'll come back to that in a future podcast with uh, with Julian and, and um, other colleagues from ECFR. But one of the other big things that was going on as the leaders began to assemble here in New York was uh, an interesting development on the Ukraine crisis. Do you want to talk about the Russian moves on Ukraine? This was a real surprise. I mean, we knew that you know we knew that Korea was going to dominate the show. We knew that Iran was going to be a big issue at the General Assembly, but then. At the BRICS summit about two weeks ago, uh, Vladimir Putin threw something entirely unexpected into the mix, which was he said that uh, Russia would be open to having some sort of UN force to help stabilize eastern Ukraine. Now, the Ukrainians have been talking about getting UN peacekeepers into the east for, for a couple of years, and the Russians have never shown any interest in that. Putin's comments and the follow-up from Moscow were opaque. It's not clear exactly what sort of force uh, the Russians would be willing to accept. They have said that 
the existing OSCE mission in eastern Ukraine, which has quite severe limits, should continue and the UN should just be there to support it. So there's, there's lots of fuzz about this. Um, and Western diplomats in New York have been working very hard to try and get a clearer picture of what the Russians are really up to, and they're, they're still not sure. Nonetheless, European diplomats, the Germans in particular, even the US, think this is a real opening, that it may be possible to work with the Russians to get to some sort of consensus on a peacekeeping mission uh, tougher than, than that which Putin originally proposed. This has been in the background during the General Assembly week. Putin was not here. Sergei Lavrov was representing Russia, um, sitting in the General Assembly Hall looking grumpy, as he usually does. But uh, neither the Americans nor the Russians have wanted to emphasize the Ukraine peacekeeping question this week, but we're going to see it come back on the Security Council agenda quite soon. And if, if progress is possible, and everyone seems to think that progress could eventually be possible, that would be a major step towards rapprochement with the Russians at, at the UN, um, especially if it goes hand in hand with the sort of de-escalation in Syria that we were just talking about. The story of UN diplomacy for the last five or six years, something that I wrote about in a report for ECFR in 2015, has been Russia using its spoiling power to weaken the institution. Now we see Russia playing along on uh, Korea, we see um, Russia making these overtures on Ukraine, we see some chance of a more cooperative approach to Syria. And so it, it could be that, for whatever reason, uh, Moscow is shifting away from its spoiling tactics in the Security Council. Why don't we um, use that to talk a bit more about the, the general health of the UN? I mean, one of the big things that's happened uh, since last year is the start of a new era for the UN under Antonio Guterres's leadership. He's obviously a much stronger personality than Ban Ki-moon was uh, beforehand. That is a somewhat low bar, but <laughs> that is correct. And we've talked before about what he was going to be able to do. I mean, what do you think his, uh, when he looks in the mirror after his first year um, in office, what do you think uh, he will feel about what he's managed to do? And how does the rest of the world, or in fact, the, the New York bubble, which you're part of, um, perceive his first year in office? Well, one, one of the few good news stories this week was that for all his tough talk on North Korea and Iran, President Trump actually backed off some of his uh, most negative statements about the work that the UN does in humanitarian crises and in terms of peacekeeping in, in places like the Sudans and, and Congo. Actually, if you listen closely to Trump's speech, he was remarkably complimentary about the UN's humanitarian work, and he was remarkably complimentary about Antonio Guterres. Now, that is not something that we would necessarily have predicted nine months ago. Uh, Guterres is a dyed-in-the-wool socialist, a deeply thoughtful man, in many ways uh, the opposite of Trump, and it was always hard to see how they would get along. But Guterres has been working almost entirely behind the scenes uh, in the course of 2017 to build a working relationship with the Trump administration and in particular with Nikki Haley, the ambassador here. And Guterres has been laying out plans to thin the UN bureaucracy, make the organisation a bit more flexible and efficient, which Haley can take back to Washington and say is, is proof that um, the UN is, is shaping up in response to the Trump era. And 
Now, UN officials have been quite sceptical of this. Uh, Guterres hasn't been very good, I think, about sharing his his strategy and his plans with uh, rank-and-file UN officials, but uh, the plans do seem to be working out. Haley has persuaded Trump to dial back the pressure on the UN as an institution, at least, for the time being. And the president even made a case for continued financial support to the UN's work in fighting famine in Africa as part of his General Assembly speech. So I would say that Guterres should be quite satisfied that he has, to some extent, tamed the Trump administration. But, you know, we have to say that all this good work on the technicalities of UN reform and uh, keeping humanitarian operations going could be undermined very, very rapidly if you have a breakdown in the Security Council over North Korea or over the Iran deal that would um, you know, completely crash US-UN relations um, again. And what about on the substance of, of the UN's work? Are there areas where Guterres has uh, tried to make a difference and put new things on the, on the table? He's been moving quite slowly and carefully. He hasn't instituted really major reforms to uh, the UN system yet, but he has laid out proposals uh, for reforms in three areas. He wants to slim down the UN development system, which is still stuck somewhere in the early 1970s in terms of bureaucracy. Uh, He especially wants to cut away a lot of the managerial rules that really constrain UN officials in crisis zones. And he's also got some ideas for improving oversight of Blue Helmet peacekeeping operations, which are adrift in in quite a few cases. And uh, this is all pretty technical stuff. It's the sort of um, institutional issue which does excite people inside the UN bubble and makes very, very little sense to people outside it. But if Guterres can get these proposals through the General Assembly budget committees and so forth, it would mean that over time the organisation would become uh, more effective, less bureaucratic, less tangled up in rules. So, I know it, we won't know for another six to nine months um, whether he can get the necessary political support for all these um, these plans. The early indications are actually quite good. Uh, so. And which, he's, he's heading in the right direction. And which crises is he focusing his efforts on? Um, Guterres has a, a wealth of crises uh, to to focus on. He actually, um, in the first half of the year, uh, was quite heavily focused on Cyprus. I think he came into office believing it might be possible to get a, a UN deal to reunify Cyprus, and that was a miscalculation. But um, since the Cyprus deal fell apart, he's been working quite a lot behind the scenes apparently on Venezuela. He's having to spend a lot of time on problems affecting some of the big African missions like uh, the UN operation in the Central African Republic. Uh, what's interesting is that he he normally prefers to do this through quiet diplomacy. He's someone who likes to work in back rooms. But he made an exception to that in the run-up to the General Assembly by calling out Myanmar over the Rohingya crisis. And uh, he's been urging the leaders here in New York to take rapid action to you know, try and stop the massive ethnic cleansing of, of the Rohingya, which uh, is, is turning into an appalling disaster uh, in, in Southeast Asia now. The fact that he uh, moved so urgently on that, um, sadly, may not really make a, a massive impact on, on the ground. The, uh, the Burmese military 
seems intent on pushing through with the ethnic cleansing. Uh, but it at least, uh, you know, it at least shows that Guterres is, is willing to stand up and make a strong moral case in the face of a humanitarian crisis. So one more kind of question, which is a bit more parochial, but it is something that a lot of people in New York seem to be talking about, which is um, Nikki Haley. She's um, uh, been, I think, a surprising success as a ambassador to the UN, and people are talking about her as a future Secretary of State, because Rex Tillerson uh, has been seen as less of a success than many people hoped he was going to be. Uh, and some people even think she's going to run for president. What's your take on Nikki Haley? You know, Nikki Haley uh, has been um, a, a real success so far. There's a very strong contrast between Haley and her, her two predecessors from the Obama administration, Susan Rice and Samantha Power. They were UN experts um, who uh, were really fascinated by the workings of the organization. Haley is, by her own admission, not a UN expert, and you know she is someone who is still fundamentally much more interested in the Washington political game than the New York bubble. She has done a good job of working with Guterres to identify ways to make the UN shape up without actually sort of wrecking the organization. And she, uh, you know, she can take credit for some, for two surprisingly tough sets of sanctions on, on North Korea, which um, the Security Council passed in August and September. So she's, she's making an impact. Um, she's also one of the few members of the Trump foreign policy team who's very much at ease with the media, and she spends a lot of time, um, especially with the American conservative media, arguing the administration's case. So she's a real asset for Trump in, in New York and, and beyond New York. The only problem we see is that Trump is clearly a little nervous about how much positive press she is getting. And each time the, the stories praising Nikki Haley start to get too, too common or too effusive, there's suddenly a bit of briefing, briefing from Washington against her. Uh, Trump even publicly stated that he didn't think that one of the sanctions resolutions she negotiated on, on Korea would have much impact. The president doesn't like his aides to get too prominent, so Haley has to walk a fine line. Yeah, we saw what happened to Steve Bannon when books started appearing about, about him as the, um, uh, the real power in the White House rather than Donald Trump. Yeah, Haley has been clever to stay off the front of time so far, because when someone gets on the front of time, Trump starts to think that they're a threat. Okay, well, it's been fascinating talking about this week's um, comings and goings uh, around the General Assembly. We have one thing left to do, which is our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf at the moment, Richard? Uh, after the General Assembly, I basically try and spend a week not thinking about the UN at all, because I love the institution, but I think the General Assembly is the most ludicrous circus invented by diplomats. Uh, so I will be going home to read the new John le Carre novel and um, Hillary Clinton's What Happened, because those strike me as two good ways to let off steam. Okay, I found a fascinating book, actually, while I've been here in New York by um, the late and much-missed uh, uh, Zygmunt Bauman. It's called Retropia, and it talks about how nostalgia is uh, becoming a new global epidemic that's reshaping our politics and our thoughts about progress and about world order and about all sorts of other things. I only read the introduction, but it looks like it's going to be a fantastic book. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, 
please do go to our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast where you can find links to all the things that we've mentioned. But more importantly than that, tell all your friends and colleagues about it on social media, tweet about it, write about it on your Facebook page on ours. And above all, please go straight to iTunes and leave us a review. We still have a very few number of wonderful, special end of the world mugs, which we will be giving to the very, very best reviews on our iTunes website. They are not only adorned with a beautiful uh, end of the world logo, but they also contain the line, the end of the, the end of the world's nip, but the coffee's hot. So uh, your friends will, will uh, you know, be in great awe of you and, uh, and you'll be the, the envy of your social circles if you get one of these mods. I, I don't have one. Well, you haven't, you haven't reviewed us on, on iTunes okay, I'll, yet. I'll go and do it <laughs> So please send me the review at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu and we will uh, consider you for one of these special, much-coveted mugs. But for now, from Richard Gowan and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenpoich, and our editor is Bulin Goenin. Mm-hmm.